holy are you, Lord God Almighty. We stand before you, children of your promise. We stand amazed and thankful and grateful. We look for the day when we will be with you in person, face to face in glory. Until then, we know that your spirit leads and guides and directs and carries us through. Give us the strength and courage that we need to face each day. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Given that uh, Barbara and I attended our pre-graduation graduation yesterday for Houston, I thought I might toss out a little counseling theory. Yet we like to think of ourselves as rational, as objective, and as fair-minded. And I want to believe that that's true as well. However, research indicates that most of our conscious or unconscious decisions are actually influenced by something else, something we're motivated by. And this process is known by as motivated reason. So, for example, you're watching your favorite sports team, whatever that might be, and the ref calls a penalty against the opposing team. Yeah! Yeah! Good call! Great! Did you see that? Yeah. And then they call it against your team. Same refs. Where did you get your license at Sears and Robux? Where did you guys come from? You know, you're blind or whatever it might be. And this runs deep. It's not only sports. It's also in every area of our lives. When we like someone, we tend to overlook many, many things. When we dislike someone... We don't overlook anything. It's what we focus on. And when our values are in question, we go to great lengths to hear those who speak our values. And we want to avoid voices that do not. It was the summer of 1986. Uh, We were in Canada completing a pastoral internship up uh, that's required by uh, Dallas Seminary. Um, at a place called Simcoe Gospel Chapel. Uh, Now, because we were often in other people's homes, we had very strict rules and regulations and guidelines about how our children were to behave. Because, of course, we wanted to put on a, you know... Not that we're a perfect family or anything like that, but be polite, you know, ask nicely... So forth and so on. Eat with what is put in front of you. And so up at the chapel, one of the elders and his wife, uh, Ivan and Muriel Ferrier, uh, invited us to their farm for dinner. Uh, a charming uh, couple. They're now both with the Lord. But we sat down and we began to enjoy the meal. Now, in many places in Canada, as in Europe, you don't drink with the meal. You, you drink after the meal. And so this was the case. This was their custom. And so we were trying to follow that. But our five-year-old Melinda 
uh, didn't care about customs or courtesies or any of those kinds of things. She wanted a drink of lemonade, so she took it. And when she did, she went, yo, or yuck, or something along those lines. Something's wrong. This tastes awful. Now, Barb and I immediately went into, you know, some kind of contain the situation mode. Barb being closer, and I don't know what was exchanged under the table. I don't need to know that. But we began to take as politely and kindly as we could corrective action because we're sitting at the table uh, with them and something along the lines of drink the lemonade without complaint uh, came out. Now, Melinda wouldn't have it. (laughs) It's hard to contain a a five-year-old. So it began to turn into a little bit of a kerfluffle. And as the temperature began to rise, Muriel, Ivan's wife, took a drink, and she said, oh my, don't, don't drink the lemonade. You see... Ivan and Muriel lived on a a farm, and they had a well, and this well, the water tasted so much of sulfur that when they had guests over, they would go to the store and they would buy water in these gallon containers. Now, hmm, you would be wrong if you thought that Melinda's complaint was that it tasted of sulfur. As it turns out, vinegar is sold in the exact same containers as the water is. And so Muriel had made the lemonade out of vinegar. And we were so utterly right, and yet we were wrong. Have you ever been so completely confident and sure about something that you were right, and then it turns out you were wrong. I'm not talking about Muriel here. I'm talking about Barb and me. Our little five-year-old Melinda was going to pay a price. But we never even bothered to taste the lemonade. We never bothered to check out the facts. We never bothered any of that because our value of them looking good in someone else's house overpowered, motivated us to think that we were right regardless of the evidence that was placed in front of us. We didn't listen to her because we didn't want to see what we were seeing. In that instant, when Muriel tasted the lemonade and explained, we realized how wrong we were. That leaves a mark. This was a long time ago. How unexamined our thoughts were. How, how unthoughtful were our expressions and our feelings. And our desire to make a good impression overrode our desire for understanding and truth. I suspect, at least at some level, you certainly uh, if you've ever taken care of children or children have been in your charge, you you have harmonized with, with some of that. We've all done that. And we've not examined what is accurate. We've wanted real to be what we decided real was to be. According to Aristotle, Socrates said, the unexamined life 
is not worth living. What he meant by that was that a life without forethought or principle is so vulnerable to chance and other people's opinion that you don't get to live your life, you're living someone else's. His notion here is that your examined life will have character and integrity. Now, I've appreciated that for many years, and some of you may have heard that before and may agree with it. Today's philosophy is is changing. In fact, William Jameson wrote this. Not only is the unexamined life worth living, it is to be preferred over the rigorous examination of life. I believe this, I, I think this speaks to our age today, where your, your drive is, is, is much like that of the kind of the natural instincts of an animal, where you just pursue what makes you feel good or what satisfies you, and you stay away from the things that, that do not, without any mindfulness whatsoever. When Socrates spoke of the examined life, it was not some self-help pop psychology. It was about character. It was about integrity. I disagree entirely with Jameson. To proceed in this life in a meaningful way, we need to know who we are. We need to know ourselves. In our text today, we find a man who had examined his life. And from that examination, he discovered a source of strength. He discovered a calling. He discovered a reconciliation with his past and a certain knowledge of his future. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 2, uh, uh, 12 through 17. In 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, the Apostle Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of the Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is driving home the point that I brought up last week. And that is, you are not saved by adding anything to the law, by the law. You are saved by grace, through faith. And using the law 
as a means of salvation not only does not get you where to go, where you want to go, it takes you places you don't want to go. And when we're looking at salvation, and we see the Apostle Paul's example, and I, there's a few things that we need to understand. First, God did not look around at his angels. He didn't glance over at Christ and, and commune with the Holy Spirit and say, Do you see Paul? I mean, that guy's incredible. The guy's got this huge brain. He's got all this education. Let's select him in the draft. That's not how it worked at all. When I was in the fifth grade, I think I mentioned this before, my, my nickname, I'd never seen kickball before. I don't even know if they still play it. But anyway, I'd never seen it before, so I wasn't any good at it. And so I earned the, the nickname Instant Out. So you know how when you pick teams, and it's always, oh, we want so-and-so, we want so-and-so. And then you get down to, then there's like the, the two or three that are left, right? You know, and nobody wants you. That's, that's where I was. I was fast, but I didn't know how to play the game. But kids would loudly uh, proclaim who they wanted and who they didn't. And it was clearly uh, not me. We're currently in the football draft, I think. They only want the best, right? So it's understandable. This is an understandable thinking. They want the best in the draft. And so I was usually last. So it took me a little while to learn uh, the game. But the next year, the very first game we played, the ball took a lucky bounce off of a pebble. And it met my foot perfectly. And so my first kick in kickball in the first game of the year... I hit it over everyone's head. The thing was gone. I got a home run. So now instant out turned to the home run king. So now I was, oh, we want him. We want him. Pick him first. We don't want this other kid over here. And my self-esteem became dependent upon how others viewed me. Not on the Lord. Certainly not. I didn't even know the Lord. I'm saying all of that to say this. Any thought, any thought that you may have that approaches Paul's personality, intelligence, education, background, upbringing, genetics, that had any influence in God's selection of him shows a fundamental misunderstanding of salvation. Complete misunderstanding of what it is. And Paul explains this. And you need to see this a little bit, uh, just how this chapter runs. Paul starts and he talks about a problem with the law. If you glance down at the end, he goes back to some people who were likely teaching this. So this stuff in the middle is not unrelated. Paul is now using himself as an example of what he's teaching. And that is this. That in uh, verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord. What is Paul's source of power? He said, the Lord gives me strength. Paul doesn't take credit for it. Paul doesn't say he's the one that did it. He doesn't say, I'm the one that graduated first in my class at Yeshiva. No, 
he credits Jesus Christ for his strength. Even though Philippians 3, 4, and 6 tells us this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul could brag from a human standpoint. And you know what? Paul occupies this extraordinary place in uh, church history. There are those who believe that the church began with Paul. There are others who believe that the church continued because of Paul. Paul, what a magnificent person. Uh, you know, and, and we tend to see Paul as a saint his entire life. We just say, oh, that first stuff, you know, he had to go through that. Yeah, yeah, we get it. It was a, it was a phase. It was a thing. It was just something uh, it was no big deal, right? No, Paul is Paul. Paul, Saul is Saul. Paul is Paul. But we need to examine the whole of his life to understand him at all. Years ago, I spoke with a person who personally knew a theologian and public speaker who had been very instrumental in really cutting my teeth doctrinally as a, as a, a Christian. And, and I got into a discussion with this uh, woman about him, and she ultimately said to me this, Trust me, he's human like any other. <laughs> now, the tone that she used, I took as a kind of a dual rebuke to me. Number one, don't set anybody up on a pedestal. But also, kind of a subtext to that was, like, I know him. He's not all that he's cracked up to be. You know, so there was that kind of element, too. That's somebody else examining someone else's life, right? But when Paul examined his own life, uh, yeah, what did he say? Look at verse 13. He says he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. Do not let this pass quickly by. Especially this last phrase. Paul calls himself an insolent man. The word in the original is where we get our word hubris from. Uh, this overflowing excessive pride. Except for this word also had connected to it this notion of violence. How many of you see Paul as a violent man? A violent man? Paul saw himself as a man of violence. He treated Christians less than human. In verse 15, he calls himself the foremost sinner. I mean, we, we can get a clearer picture of the Apostle Paul, the kind of man he was before his conversion in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We don't think of him as a violent man, but here we read, And Saul approved of his execution. And there on that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem 
and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging, ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committed them to prison. Ravaging. The words that are used here are words that one would use of a barbarian. Someone outside, not just outside the faith, but outside humanity. Listen, when they came to Jesus Christ to kill him, what did they do? Oh, we can't do this. We can't do this. We can't do this. Why? Why couldn't they do this? Because it was illegal. We need to turn him over to the Romans. Paul had no problem. Paul had no problem with this. He went out there and he just did it. Paul was... Listen. I'm going to make an analogy that some of you are really going to dislike. But he was as feared as some men and women still fear this day when the Taliban come and knock on their door in Afghanistan. He was feared and he was hated. You don't understand anything about how Barnabas introduced him to the church and the fear that these people had of him because he was such... In Acts 22, 4, it tells us that he persecuted believers to their deaths. Now, I've mentioned this before. I don't have sufficient time to develop it, but as an experienced, trauma-informed counselor, I, I, I believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh wasn't his poor eyesight. I believe that it was his inability to close his eyes without seeing all the lives that he had destroyed, either by death, imprisonment, impoverishment, separation. You've got to understand, it'll make maybe even a little bit more sense here in just a minute, the pain that this caused Paul. But amid that pain, and it's just here that we see that Paul never got over the sheer amazement of what happened on the Damascus Road. He was on his way to that city. Why was he going to that city? to imprison, to persecute. Listen to what it says, Acts 9.1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciple, disciples of the Lord. Then he suddenly fell to the ground and the glory of the Lord that shone on him showed him who Jesus was, and he came to see that which he held true and commendable and worthy of sacrifice to God Almighty was none other than blasphemy and persecution and insult to the God of grace. Yet the Lord chose him. 
the, the point here can't be overemphasized. Paul is doing two things simultaneously. One, he's giving is an example of what happens to you if you use the law wrongfully. You turn into a blasphemer, you turn into a persecutor, and you turn into a violent person. How many arguments do people get over that come to sometimes physical violence over details of some notion of the law that they hold to. Well, thank God, not many here, but don't think that it doesn't happen. It does. But the other thing is that the law is not grace. The Lord knew, the Lord knew, the Lord knew in the moment, and yet the Lord chose. This is a great comfort to us. The Lord knows, listen, It's not just that he knows. He knew your sin from eternity past. He knew mine. And yet, he cannot love you any more than he does. He loves you completely, and he chose you. Paul's argument here is to use his own life to illustrate what the law brings when used unlawfully. It's also to show... Grace, And as he reflects on this, he says, I, uh, as the foremost sinner, I, I, I want to try to create something in your mind that perhaps you've never thought about. Do not fool yourself into thinking when Paul wrote these words that this was some academic, sterile notion of theology that he was trying to impart to Timothy. It was not. I believe there were tears in his eyes, or at least in his heart, when he wrote this. And in truth, that's where we should all be when we think back upon our sin, combined with the grace of God that flooded into our lives, that gave us life. Paul doesn't say, I want you to notice this in verse 15. Paul doesn't say, I was the worst of sinners. I was the foremost sinner. What does he say? Read it. I am. I am. Thankfully, Paul's story didn't end there. For Paul and for us who believe, we go back to 13, but... I received mercy. We received mercy. How? Verse 14. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace was poured out in abundance on the Apostle Paul. Grace, if we have trusted him, if you have trusted Christ, then grace has been poured out on you in abundance. Not just grace, but but faith and love found in Jesus Christ. The same grace, faith, and love that was poured out on Paul has been poured out on us. All of us who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now this this may sound simple to us. John, what level is that? That's Sunday school. But when you think 
of that combined with how you were lost, lost, bewildered, confused, darkened, dead, alienated from the life of God. And that's how Paul tells us in Ephesians we were. Whether you're brilliant-minded or highly educated or the poorest of the poor, we're all in the same boat. Jesus Christ came to take away the darkness, to unveil himself before us, to remove the illusions, to reveal reality, to awaken love in our hearts and compassion and mercy. Paul wrote, I was shown mercy so that I could be an example to others. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote this, A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon the deeds as dollars and the words as cents. If his life and doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Those who knew Paul, or I should say Saul well, at that point, they would have been and they were astonished at his transformation in his life and in his behavior. What an amazing testimony Paul had. God could transform a man like Paul, then there is hope for me. There is hope for you. And by saving Paul, God demonstrated his mercy as an example. I mean, our testimonies, too, can be powerful. There's one other purpose that I want to mention here as well, though. And, and that is the, the result of a changed life. I mean, look at what Paul does. This, this erupts from Paul. This isn't, hmm, what are some, uh, hey, hey, uh, so-and-so, come over here. What do you, what do you think, how, how does this sound? How does this sound? Maybe these words will work. We've got to put the positive, we've got to put the spin on it, right? That's not what happened here. These are words that just erupted from him as he's looking at his past life, as he's looking what God saved him from. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Our lives are to bring glory to God. We, while we may be ashamed of our past life, we should not be ashamed to tell it. Because it is through the telling that other people have some notion that they too might find the grace and mercy of God. So just a few questions as we conclude. Have you been reconciled to God? That's first things first. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you can share in the riches of the Apostle Paul if you do. If you are a believer, are you taking advantages of the opportunity 
to live your life as an example to others. In other words, do people see that your words and that your deeds are together? Throughout this week, let's reflect on this passage and honestly examine our own lives to see if there are things that the Lord wants us to change. And Paul was absolutely, positively, entirely sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was right until he understood that he was wrong. And then that changed him. And when that happened, God saved him and gave him a new identity. An examined life, an examined life of a believer, you will... I believe, end up with the words of this song, which I heard and I thought, you know, I'm going to put that in there. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name? (laughs) Would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way For my ever-wandering heart. Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love and watch me rise again? Who am I that the voice that calmed the sea would call me through the rain and calm the storm in me? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. So who am I? I am a flower, quickly fading. Here today, gone tomorrow. A wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still... You hear me when I'm calling, Lord. You catch me when I'm falling. You've told me who I am. I am yours. Father, through Christ, we have been reconciled with you. Lord, our our gratitude overflows. We are so deeply grateful for the love and the mercy and the compassion that you've shown us. And we pray each day that as we walk in this world that we realize that we are, even though earthly Children of Adam, through you, through you, we belong to you. And as we heard this morning, you have residence in us through your Holy Spirit. We thank you, we praise you for who you are, for what you've done. Through Christ our Lord, amen.